1981. Two entomologists working in Western Australia come upon a couple of flying jewel beetles hovering a few feet above the ground. They look sort of like giant cockroaches, golden brown with an iridescent sheen. As they watch, the beetles dive down towards the ground. The two men know the jewel beetles are on the verge of extinction, but they don't know why. Nobody really does. The scientists are standing next to a road, and the ground is littered with beer bottles. It's a big pastime out in the Australian bush. People drink in their cars and chuck the empties out the window. They call the bottles stubbies. The researchers look again at the beetles. Each is now gripping a stubby with its legs. Their genitals are exposed, a sign that they're trying to mate. There's a dead beetle a few inches away, covered in ants. It doesn't take long for the scientists to come up with a hypothesis. To test it, they place four stubbies on the ground and wait. Pretty soon, the bottles have attracted more male beetles. They take notes as the beetles drop onto the bottles and try to copulate with them. Tirelessly, incessantly, one of the men picks up a bottle and shakes it, but the beetle hangs on. Needless to say, it's not getting anywhere with its amorous advances. The dead beetle nearby looks like he died trying. So why don't the beetles give up? Well, if you've ever seen a female jewel beetle, you know she's shiny, brown, and her forewings are covered with little bumps. The stubbies are also shiny and brown, and they have a textured ring of bumpy glass around their bottoms, kind of like a jewel beetle blow-up doll. Clearly, the males believe the bottles are females, and the researchers think their strenuous, suicidal mating may be why the jewel beetle population is crashing. They publish their observations in a scientific journal. Their argument leads the beer companies to redesign the stubbies to remove the little bumps. It's not long before the beetle population starts to recover. What the scientists observed on that dusty roadside wasn't how stupid jewel beetles are. It was how evolution had pared down their powers of perception to the minimum needed for survival. Over millions of years, the males had developed simple shortcuts to help them recognize females. Those shortcuts allowed them to reproduce, to keep their species going. But the beer bottles were new, and they threw a wrench in the evolutionary works. It turns out evolution doesn't just play those sorts of tricks on beetles. It also plays them on us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, why what we see is not, in fact, reality. The story about the Australian jewel beetles is from a book called The Case Against Reality by UC Irvine cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman. Hoffman argues that our senses are a poor guide to reality because they were shaped by evolution to help us reproduce. 
not to know the truth. That simple insight has led him down some surprising paths, ultimately bringing him to a theory that questions the conventional wisdom on pretty much everything. Hold on to your britches, folks. This episode is a head spinner. Don Hoffman, so great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So you have this new book out called The Case Against Reality. What is it that you have against reality? Some of us quite like reality. Ah, yes. I actually am a realist. I think that there is an objective reality that would exist even if no one were around to perceive it. It's just that that reality is not space and time and its contents. It's something utterly outside of space and time. So your book gets into some really head-spinning, extraordinary ideas, but let's work our way up to those. Let's start with beauty, because I think it's one of the easiest places to start. Most of us can appreciate the idea that beauty is a subjective experience. To the Australian jewel beetle, a beer bottle may be more irresistible than any female jewel beetle. Is that the case? Uh, you know, the, the male beetles had for thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands or even millions of years, successfully found and mated with females. So you would think that evolution had shaped their perceptions to mm -hmm. tell them, you know, the truth about what a female is. That's, that's pretty important to know for the survival mm -hmm. of your species. But apparently what evolution shaped in these beetles was just a simple heuristic. A female is anything dimpled, glossy, and brown. And apparently the larger size of the bottle was also attractive to them. So... So evolution just gave them some tricks and hacks that were cheap, uh, a very, that weren't expensive, that didn't cost a lot of neural hardware, a lot of energy to compute it. And in their niche, those tricks and hacks worked quite well. Just look for something dimpled, glossy, and brown and try to mate with it. And in their niche, that worked. But all you needed to do was perturb the niche just a little bit, throw some beer bottles out there, and the whole species uh, was on the brink of extinction. And mm -hmm. when we look at evolution and look at the history of, on our planet, in fact, 99.99% of all species that have ever been on the earth are now extinct. So this is perhaps not the exception, it's the rule. I'm guessing that many listeners may be thinking, what foolish little beetles. You know, we humans have far more powerful cognitive powers and would never mistake a stubby for an attractive mate. I get the sense, having read your book, that we may make similar mistakes, and we may be unwittingly making love to stubbies without realizing it. That's right. We, we have our own tricks and hacks that have been programmed into us by evolution. And they may be different from the beetles. We may be able to laugh at the beetle, but we have ourselves tricks and hacks, and we're not really seeing the truth. And even when we know that we're being tricked, so for example, you know, makeup. Makeup is lying. It's, it's making the skin look, uh, you know, younger than it is, and the, the eyeliner and so forth, the lips, those are all fake. We know it. And in many cases, you know, lipstick well done makes uh, beautiful lips, but lips that would never appear in nature. And yet, if it's done right, it can look more attractive than the real thing. And so once again, we find that our visual systems find attractive things that would never occur in nature and things that are so-called supernormal stimuli. These are stimuli that are more attractive to us than the real thing, and they reveal, again, the kinds of heuristics and tricks that have been built into us by evolution. Much as the stubby beer bottle is a kind of exaggeration of an attractive jewel beetle, 
humans appear to be attracted to exaggerations of like the Jessica rabbits, these kind of 3D rendered exaggerated versions of humans. And and this is something that's exploited in in advertising and in pornography. And I guess that makes logical sense. Yes. I mean, there are a few obvious principles that we use. For example, in, in male ratings of female attractiveness, it turns out that youth is an exceedingly important feature. And the reason is that the women's reproductive span is much, much shorter than a man's. Those are the selection pressures that then have pushed men to look for signs of youth and health. And so large eyes and makeup is used on, on women's eyes to make the eyes look larger because the eye of an infant or young person is a much larger proportion of the face than in an adult. So you, you see this in anime cartoons and so forth where they'll make the, sure. the, the eyes unbelievably large. Also, full lips. It turns out full lips are an indication of estrogen. Interesting. Higher estrogen leads to fuller lips because of fatty deposits. You also write about rings in the eyes. That's right. That are also indications of youth. This was one that I found. I was looking at at a picture of the Afghan girl, the very famous picture in National Geographic. I think it's their biggest selling cover ever. Very, very famous photo. And and you look at her face and and you, you find that you can hardly look away. And I was looking at her face, trying to figure out what was, you know, so riveting and attractive about it. And I noticed, if you look very closely at her eyes, you'll see that her eyes are almost like a bullseye. There's a very, very dark pupil, but right at the edge of the colored iris, there's a very, very dark ring. So I began to look at pictures of people from infancy through a, you know, old age, and so did my students. And we found statistically that, the, that this ring is called the limbal ring is more pronounced and more thick relative to the size of the eye in infants. And as we age, the thickness and distinctness statistically gets worse. And so for that reason, I, I hypothesized that we've been programmed by evolution to find thicker and more distinct limbal rings more attractive because they're a sign both of youth and of health. And so my, my students, Darren Peshek and, and others, went ahead and did some wonderful experiments and found that indeed it's the case that it was an amazingly simple experiment. We would show a face, two copies of a face side by side, exactly the same face. But in one, we had we modified the eyes so that there was no limbal ring. And in the other, we had put a, a limbal ring. And we asked people just on each trial of the experiment to look at the two faces, which looked the same, and say which was more attractive. And the people would say, well, you know, they're the same. I mean, they're exactly the same face. And we say, well, you know, just humorous, you know, just pick one. And so they, even though they thought that they were exactly the same face, they would pick the face that had the limbal rings over the ones that didn't. So they didn't know what was going on, but subconsciously this algorithm was inside them saying that's the more attractive one because it, there are signals of youth and health in that limbal ring. Extraordinary. Now, I've been told that one... Uh, feature that people look at sometimes is posteriors, also known as rear ends. And that there are blue jeans that are, are very carefully designed to effectively wireframe our posteriors to look more muscular and toned and rounded than they in fact are. That, that's right. In fact, uh, that was designed by uh, my, my graduate student uh, and I. Bo- both of us, were, we came up with the idea of using the visual cues of shading and and contours to actually shape clothing to make you look more attractive. So, for example, if you look at a black and white photograph of a face, you can see, even though the the black and white photograph is flat, you can see the three-dimensional shape 
of the face, of the cheeks and so forth. And, and the way you can do that, even though the image is flat, is because you use the gradients of light and dark in the black and white image to create a three-dimensional interpretation. And, and we actually know now with mathematical precision how you do that. And that's how we're able to use that to build robot AI systems that can start to see in 3D and drive cars. And so what, what my student Darren Pashik and I decided to do was to use that kind of cue in jeans, because you, if you look at jeans, they will hand sand them to make them look a little bit worn. So and yep, so yep, they sure. call that a finish. Yeah, yep. they have a finish on the jeans. And so the received opinion in the in you know the clothing industry, the jeans industry, was that well, yeah, we're trying to get a nice vintage look, some kind of old. And, and what we pointed out was that well, if you're hand sanding, you're making a shading gradient that where where it's not sanded, it's dark, and where you are sanding, it's very very light. And so you are creating a three-dimensional shape. There, there's no doubt about it. And the only question is, do you know what three-dimensional shape you're creating? And is it the one that you want? Are you making people look attractive, for example? Or, or, or what are you doing to them? And what we found was that, in general, the, the shading gradients on the, on the rear were giving people what we would call pancake butt. It's, <laughs> it's flattening out your, your, your rear and making it perfectly flat. And, and that's just not, for most of us, a very flattering look. And so what we were able to do was to say, look, look, for each clothing size, from, you know, two up to you know, 20, we can get a ideal model for that size, someone who is fit and, you know, healthy looking, and we can get an avatar in a computer, uh, a naked avatar, and we can get the right lighting and then get the shading gradient of that athletic firm physique. And we use that to guide a laser to do a finish on the jeans. And so we proposed this to um, a clothing company. I don't know if you uh, don't want me to advertise it. I, I won't mention the name I, of the company. I was going to say, this sounds like a side business. This, this could fund a lot, of, a lot of research. No, by all means, go share, share what's, the, what's the company. We did it with Lee and Wrangler jeans. Extraordinary. The product is called Body Optics, O-P-T-I-X. And oh. it, it became so successful that Four of my PhD students are now full-time employees of, of the <laughs> oh company, gosh. and, and they're helping them. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's transformed how you think about clothing. We think of clothing as makeup for the body. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about it that way, we then figure every stitch, every pocket, all the embroidery, all the finishes, everything is telling the 3D story. It, 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 that's not optional. You can't help it. The fact that you don't know what the three-dimensional story is doesn't mean that you're not telling one. So you have to understand that you're creating a 3D story about the shape of the person. And once you understand that, now you can play with the stitching, the pockets, the embroidery, the finishes, the patterns even. We can distort patterns like checkers and so forth very, very subtly to tell a lie about your shape. And it works. It's, it's very effective. If you want to look bigger and more muscular, we can do that. If you have a smaller rear end and you want it to look a little bit bigger and athletic, we can do that. If you want to make your rear end look a little bit smaller, we can do that as well. The visual tricks are all there. We can, we can do any illusion that you want. So it's not, you know, one size fits all. We're not trying to make everybody look, you know, athletic and, and so forth. We can, we can do whatever you want. So it's, it's not only evolution that's hiding the truth from our eyes, is it sub, the subtitle of your book, it's also your graduate students <laughs> in, their, in their side projects. Absolutely. Um, and by the way, we're latecomers to this. Animals and plants are using uh, this kind of trickery all the time. There's camouflage and imitation and so forth in nature all the time. 
Well, it, it, it's amazing that we're as easily fooled as we are because one of the things that one comes away with reading your book is what an incredibly sophisticated visual system we have, right? I, th- I believe it's like a third of our brains are, are employed in, in the visual system. That's right. The cortex of the brain has roughly 86 billion neurons, and about a third of those deal with visual perception. We've reverse engineered a lot of that, which is one reason why we can start to build robotic vision systems that see in 3D. They take video in from cameras, and they have very sophisticated algorithms um, which are computing a three-dimensional world in real time. And that takes a lot of computation. And so that's the standard story about why we have 20, 30 billion neurons involved in visual processing. You're not mm-hmm. just taking a picture. Yeah. You're constructing everything that you see in real time. But we really have a, a very narrow subset of visual inputs that we actually c- that we can perceive at all. That's right. We're using a very, very small amount of information and um, throwing out most. So an apple, if I'm holding an apple in my hand and looking at it, it my perception of it is uh, as being the color red, that in fact what I'm seeing is the way the light refracts off the surface of the apple at a, at a certain wavelength that I perceive to be red, right? Yes. And, and, and effect, right. effectively, it's code, right? I mean, the, the color and the chromature are effectively code for an indication of, pota- of perhaps fitness points of, of uh, the, the value of that object to me. Absolutely. So from an evolutionary point of view, the primary point of all of our perceptions, every aspect of perception, colors, sounds, shapes, smell, everything is designed to give us fitness payoffs, to keep us alive long enough to reproduce. And uh, if I were to slice open the apple and smell it, and then also perhaps, I mean, that's, that's a very attractive smell to me. I love the smell of an apple. Sure. But again, there's nothing inherent in the apple that is associated with that smell. That is an experience that my brain is generating. That's right. That's triggered by the apple. But the apple inherently is neither red nor contains that smell. That's exactly right. I mean, if you think about it, what we're smelling are these various chemicals. There, there are these carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen combinations in, into chemicals I mean, if I give you, you know, the, the chemical formula for, say, vanilla, um, there's, and I said to you, what should that smell like? You'd go, I, I have no idea. If I just showed you the chemical formula, you'd have no idea what it smells like. So the apple smells good because somewhere deep in our genes, we know that eating it will give us sugar, antioxidants, and fiber that help us survive. Just like a cow patty might smell like cinnamon and honey to a fly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that apples or cow patties really inherently smell good. And that simple point raises a much bigger question. Is reality something outside of us, as we tend to assume? Or is it our own creation? Hey, I'm Michael Kovnett, host of The Next Big Idea Daily. The show is a masterclass in better living from some of the smartest writers around. Every morning, Monday through Friday, we'll serve up a quick 10-minute lesson on how to strengthen your relationships, supercharge your creativity, boost your productivity, and more. Follow The Next Big Idea daily wherever you get your podcasts. You're sitting at your desk, looking at your computer monitor, 
It's all very familiar. You see a row of icons on the bottom of the screen. You see a blue postage stamp or maybe an envelope. Click on it and it opens your email. There's a blue bubble with three dots for text messages. It all makes intuitive sense. It would never occur to you to think that the desktop interface is a window into the truth of the computer. The truth of the computer is wires, chips, circuits, voltages, and layers of software. To represent all that on the desktop, it would be too much information. In the case against reality, Donald Hoffman says the world we live in is like that desktop, populated with icons that help us do what we need to do, to survive, to reproduce, to perpetuate our species. Everything we see around us, an apple, a snake, our computer, our friends, all just icons. In fact, the desktop interface is there, and we pay good money for it, to hide all that truth, to hide all that complexity. If you, you, know, if you had to toggle voltages to craft an email, your friends wouldn't hear from you. And so there the truth gets in the way. What I've found working with my collaborators is that is not simply that evolution by natural selection sort of makes us exaggerate and get things a little bit wrong, get the shapes wrong or the colors a little bit off or things like that. It's far more profound. It's that the very language of space and time and shape and colors and so forth, all of our sensory language, is the wrong language to describe objective reality. You could not frame a description of objective reality at all in that language. So the standard argument is that those of our ancestors who saw reality more accurately had a competitive advantage over those who saw reality less accurately in the big activities of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. And, and so as, as a result, because they saw more accurately, they were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for sensory systems that reported the truth of the world accurately. So after thousands of generations of that, we can be quite confident that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately. And so we see reality as it is. Not, not all of reality, of course, but those aspects of reality that are important for our survival. And that's the standard view. It's in the textbooks and, and lots of very bright uh, evolutionary theorists put out that point of view. About 12 years ago, I began to wonder if I could actually test that. Um, you know, evolution by natural selection is now a mathematically precise theory. There's something called evolutionary game theory. And evolutionary game theory captures the essence of evolution by natural selection in the mathematics. And, it, it, and so we can use that mathematics to actually explore in, in simulations and then also in theorems, what will evolution do, what will natural selection do about sensory systems? Will it actually shape sensory systems to see the truth or not? When I first started doing this with my graduate students, what we did was we created hundreds of thousands of random worlds in which creatures could forage for resources. And we would place creatures in these worlds that would be able to see all of the truth or part of the truth or none of the truth. And then we were testing the creatures who saw all of reality as it is versus those who saw none of reality but were just seeing the fitness payoff points. And what we found was that creatures that saw reality as it is were never more fit than creatures that saw none of reality and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. To put it very simply, creatures that saw the truth would go extinct if they competed against creatures of equal complexity that saw none of the truth 
and we're just tuned to the fitness payoffs. And so prodded by that result of the simulations, I, I went to a, a mathematician, friend of mine, Chetan Prakash, and proposed a theorem, and, and Chetan was able to prove it. And the theorem basically is, says this, an organism that sees reality as it is, is never more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality and is just tuned to the fitness payoffs. So the theorem is, according to natural selection, if you see the truth, you'll go extinct. Just that simple. You'll be outcompeted by organisms that don't see the truth and are just tuned to the fitness payoffs. And you might say, well, what about seeing just a little bit of the truth and, and a lot of fitness? And it turns out any time that you spend wasted on looking at the truth are calories that are wasted because you need to spend those calories instead pursuing fitness payoffs, not the truth. So to put a finer point out on it for listeners out there, I'm looking at a microphone and a glass of water and a pen, and your view is that none of these things actually exist. When I close my eyes, they disappear. When I open them, my brain generates effectively a hologram or a hallucination of those objects, but that in reality, they are not there. That's exactly right. There is an objective reality, and we're using things like pens and, and glasses of water and so forth as an interface symbols that we use to interact with the reality. So our perceptions are nothing like the reality, and it's just like if you have a virtual reality headset on, right? And say you're, you know, yeah. you're, you're in the Grand Theft Auto thing. I look over here, I see my steering wheel that I'm in my car. Now I, I turn my head and I no longer see the steering wheel. Well, the steering wheel no longer exists because it only exists when I see it and create it. Uh, so if I look back over there, I'll, st I'll again see the steering wheel because now I'm creating a steering wheel. And so the fact that I can predict that if I look over here, I'll see the steering wheel doesn't mean the steering wheel always exists. It just means that I am interacting with another reality, in this case, the circuits of the, v you know, the VR program. I'm interacting with this other reality that's utterly unlike a steering wheel. And every time I interact with it in this systematic way, I see a steering wheel because I create it. And that's what I'm saying is happening all the time in everyday life. We're rendering space and time. We're rendering a chair. I'm rendering an apple. When I look, and then when I look away, I, I cease to render it. I garbage collect it. I throw it away. And now I render something else. So we're creating space, time, and objects on the fly, just like we create the objects in virtual reality on the fly and then destroy them when we move our head around. How does this go over at dinner parties? I mean, do you, do you find yourself saying, your pasta is delicious, even though it's in fact just an icon on my desktop and doesn't exist? It depends. In some groups, I just won't even bring this up because I don't want to be dismissed as a crank. But with my colleagues, it's, it's interesting. Of course, I, you know, I'm a professor at the University of California at Irvine, and I give colloquia at various universities. I give talks and at, at conferences and so forth. And the reason I'm you know, invited to do this is because I have a theorem. It's a theorem of evolution by natural selection that the probability is zero that space and time as we perceive it bears any relationship to reality and physical objects, the probability is zero. And yet no one can dismiss the theorem. And so they have to take the ideas seriously, even though they're extremely counterintuitive. It's an interesting situation where people don't like what I'm saying. It's very, very counterintuitive. On the other hand, you know, I've got the evolutionary game theory simulations and theorems. And so they have to take it seriously. But, the, you know, we're at this awkward stage right now where people are trying to grapple and figure out what they want to do with this uncomfortable fact. But there is also, you know, supporting you, there's an emerging view among theoretical physicists that space-time is, is doomed, as you say, that it's not the final reality, 
that it's a, a representation of some kind of like lower order reality. That's, that's perhaps data. That, that's right. It's, um, it's one thing for a cognitive neuroscientist to go around proclaiming that uh, we make up space and time. And you, you might say, well, surely, you know, that's the domain of physicists and they would have something to say to that cognitive neuroscientist to put him in his place. And so I decided to go, you know, I'm not a physicist, but I decided to go look at what the physicists are up to here. And it turns out they've been wrestling with the problem of getting quantum field theory and general relativity to play nicely with each other. And they've not been able to do it. And this has led several, in, in fact, um, Nima Arkani Hamed, who's a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, David Gross, who won the Nobel Prize, and uh, also Ed Witten, who won the Fields Medal, have all said this very phrase, space-time is doomed. And Nima Arkani Hamed has gone further to say pretty much all of us believe and know that space-time is doomed. We don't know what's going to replace it, but we know space-time is doomed. And this is a bit startling, he says, because for you know, the last few centuries, physics has been about what happens in space and time. So if physics isn't about what's happening in space and time, it's not really clear what physics is about. Don Hoffman isn't the first thinker to argue that we create reality rather than perceive it. In fact, he's part of a long tradition going back at least as far as the 16th century. Galileo wrote, I think that tastes, odors, colors, and so on reside in consciousness. Hence, if the living creature were removed, all these qualities would be wiped away and annihilated. The fact that Galileo surmised that almost 500 years ago is extraordinary to me. It's very impressive. Um, I mean, Galileo was way ahead of his time in many ways. And as a result, he was put in house arrest for the last part of his life because his ideas were too radical. Uh, But he was saying, look, things aren't always the way they look to us. It looks like the earth doesn't move, but in fact, it does move. And it looks like reality, and it feels like reality has colors, odors, tastes, and smells, but in fact, those are our creation. We're creating that stuff. If reality isn't what we see, smell, taste, and hear, then what is it? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Donald Hoffman has considered a lot of different trippy theories about what the true nature of reality might be, like that it's a computer simulation, or that it's created by consciousness, either ours or somebody else's or that we may just be avatars in a virtual world, like in the movie The Matrix, but with no way out. And that's what I'm saying, everyday life, the the objects, the cars, the trucks, um, the bicycles that we see are virtual reality. Space-time itself is just a virtual stage that we have created and placed these objects in. So this reminds me of Nick Bostrom's argument that we're living in a simulation, which you allude to in the book. And I sometimes have fun sharing this argument with people 
at dinner parties, and it takes them a little while to get wrap their heads around it. I explained it to my 14-year-old son who, who spends an unfortunate amount of time playing video games. <laughs> and he paused for, you know, five, 10 seconds and said, yeah, that makes perfect sense, Dad. I could totally see that we may be living in a simulation. <laughs> so, so for kids who, for a new generation that spends more time interacting with interfaces, the notion that all of our reality around us, and also experiencing increasingly compelling versions of virtual reality, right, that the notion that, that everything we perceive around us could itself be another layer of simulation was totally logical. What do you think of uh, the argument that we're living in a simulation? Absolutely. Uh, first, I'll agree with your point that the younger generation being exposed to virtual reality headsets and, and environments that are more and more compelling, it, it's going to be a no-brainer when, when someone has been immersed in a reality that's just immersive and, and compelling as everyday life. You won't have to be a Galileo or, or Copernicus to take your headset off and, and ask the question, well, what about this that, that I call reality? Couldn't this just be another, another uh, virtual reality? And so I think the next generation is going to get this idea. It won't be, you know, for my generation, it's a stunner and a showstopper and, and, and people laugh. It's just too crazy. But it won't be, it won't be, I think, for the next generation. But so I'll tell you where my ideas are similar and different from Bostrom's simulation hypothesis. Where, where it's similar is the idea that the space and time that we're perceiving right now is not a fundamental reality. It's just something that we create. That part I'm on board with. Here are the two parts where I differ. Bostrom proposes that, well, okay, our reality here is just a virtual reality created by some programmer at a, at a lower level, and that programmer itself might, and, and his world or her world, might be just the simulation of yet a lower level. And you go all the way down, there's going to be finally some bottom level. And that bottom level, if you, if you look at the simulation hypothesis, is always taken to be a real physicalist space-time world. And I'm denying yeah. that reality at its bottom is, is physicalist in space-time. I'm saying that space-time is not the final reality. Space-time is doomed. Space-time is just a data structure. So I, I disagree with Bostrom on that. But there's another even more important aspect of the simulation theory that's, that's problematic. The assumption that this programmer in a physicalist world could somehow, with the right program, create creatures like us that have conscious experiences is, I think, false. There's no theory about how you know, programs could create consciousness that can explain even one experience, say, the taste of vanilla. If you, if you tell these people, okay, what program uh, running in the simulation um, is, must be my experience of the taste of vanilla and could not be the smell of garlic, they can't give you one example, and there's no scientific theory for it. So that's a fundamental assumption in the simulation hypothesis that programs could give rise to conscious experiences, and there's no science to back it up. How do you um, fit this into your life, or does it not? I mean, when you think, obviously, like the rest of us, you're navigating the world and with family and friends, and how do you find your journey through these different ideas has impacted or not impacted how you live your life day to day? It is impacting my life. I've slowly changed my perception of the world in everyday life from I'm just seeing the truth, which is the way we normally perceive ourselves. I'm just seeing the chair that really is there. I'm seeing the moon that really is there. I'm more and more starting to feel like, yeah, I've got a VR headset on. That's what's going on here. I'm just rendering this stuff as I walk. And so it's, it's starting to change my everyday experience of what I'm doing. It's very, very interesting. And on a personal level, right, the issue about physical reality and so forth, 
really ties into spirituality issues. You know, is there mm -hmm. a transcendent reality beyond space and time? What is the yep. nature of human consciousness? Also, what is the nature of right and wrong? Can we get a theory of good and evil or are these illusory? So for me, my, my father was a Protestant fundamentalist minister. Interesting. So I was raised in that kind of culture for, for decades. And, you know, I've walked away from it, but the questions that they ask are important questions. I think the answers that they gave aren't adequate, but nevertheless, the questions are important. And so for me, there's another aspect of this, which is the relationship of science and spirituality, which mm -hmm. I, I hope will have a much more profitable relationship in the future where, you know, the spiritual traditions in many cases have already let go of space-time. They are already saying that that's fun not fundamental. And the scientists are catching up on that. But what the scientists have is a non-dogmatic and precise approach toward theory building. And I want to bring that non-dogmatic, precise theory building approach to the big questions in spirituality. And I think we can. And then the questions that are most important to us will actually have the benefit of the best tools that we have, namely the scientific method. You know, what, what I find really interesting about the way you talk about it, Don, and I've also watched some of your video seminars on the subject, is to watch the way the beginning of a theory em emerges and is posited and enters the public discourse in the realm of science, right? I I've heard you say, I'm probably wrong about some of this, but I'm going to speak about it with great precision and specificity so that mathematicians and physicists and others can prove me wrong in specific places, right? But, but so would it be accurate to say that you see this as the beginning, sort of the early gestation of a theory that needs to go through a process of being tested? Absolutely. We're at the very baby beginnings of this new approach to fundamental reality. And of course, I'm probably wrong. I've not seen any scientific theory that I think is correct. I see theories that are beautiful. I mean, evolution by natural selection is beautiful. It's powerful. In the area of biology, we have nothing better, and it's incredibly powerful. In general relativity, quantum field theory, these are incredibly beautiful and powerful theories, but the theorists themselves know there's something deeply wrong. My personal gut sense, which is not worth a whole lot, is that the journey of science has been a journey of greater and greater humility for humans, yeah. right? <laughs> right? I mean, starting with yes. the Copernican Re revolution, you know, the, the universe does not, in fact, rotate around the earth. Um, then we have sort of the erosion of a belief in God having created man in his, his image and that, we, you know, that we're, not, we're not the spiritual center of the world. And now, more recently, even, even an erosion of our potential belief in, in our free will and agency and it strikes me as somewhat logical that there would be, when you look at this sort of, the messiness of the 14 billion years of evolution through natural selection and the accident of this resulting in, in humans, and then a set of assumptions that we have about being the center of the universe that gradually erode as we get better at trying to be scientifically rigorous and disciplined about understanding what's around us. That feels logically right to me, that we would feel more and more humble <laughs> over time. Right. Well, I would agree with you that, that humility is the right attitude to all of this. Science involves humility and precision. Now, of course, many scientists are as dogmatic as anybody else. Um, I've got lots of friends who are dogmatic, who are scientists. But science as a social institution pits 
different scientists against each other with their theories. And I may not be trying to disprove my theory, but I am trying to disprove your theory. That's how we, we make real progress. So that's one thing we've learned, to be humble, not dogmatic, and to be absolutely precise. Well, Don Hoffman, thank you so much for coming on the Next Big Idea podcast. That was utterly fascinating, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. If you have thoughts about The Case Against Reality or any of the other books in the series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com. And if you join the Next Big Idea Club now, we'll send you a free copy of the book we've been talking about today, Donald Hoffman's mind-blowing The Case Against Reality. To get the book, go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use the promo code reality. Again, that's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code reality. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Donald Hoffman. His book, The Case Against Reality, is available wherever books are sold or at nextbigideaclub.com. You've been listening to The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Ann Hoffman. No relation to today's guests. Sound design is by David Grabowski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. The Next Big Idea is produced by Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.